Hi, uh, welcome to the show. How about you guys introduce yourself? I'm uh, David No. Um, I am a co-founder of Lockhart, and this is Don. Hey, Don here. Yeah. Okay, and um, and what's what's Lockhart about? Oh, what is Lockhart about? Um, well, we we are a game studio, um, but uh, we actually started off um, making uh, a tool for uh, Corona developers okay. to get uh, their Flash assets uh, into their games. But uh, we're focusing mostly on our own games uh, right now. Um, yeah, can you... So, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that tool a little later in the interview. Uh, for now, what, what inspired you to um, get into games? You know, get into... Were you doing games before mobile games, or what inspires you to do mobile games? Well, Don was in games uh, before I was. I actually um, was an aerospace engineer before this and a uh, designer um, after, after aerospace engineering. So this is actually um, one of my first experiences uh, making uh, any, any sort of game. Okay. And what do you, I mean, what inspires you to do mobile games versus, say, Facebook games or online games or Flash games? Well, uh, I actually came from doing Facebook games. Uh, there's a couple of years back when uh, you know Zynga was sort of <laughs> on, on their meteoric rise, and uh, I recognized after a failed attempt at a prior startup that uh, Facebook games are shark-infested waters, and it made sense <laughs> to kind of get out of that space and uh, kind of go to um, so still uh, you know a somewhat open arena with regards to mobile games and, and try things there. Okay, so so basically you felt that Facebook games were going to be dominated by one company and that mobile was going to be a place where indies could still have a chance? Is, am well, I understanding that correctly, or did you feel something else entirely? Basically, when you look at the economics of it, uh, it costs too much to acquire users on the Facebook platform. Yeah. Now, really, what you need is a game that uh, is sort of like an engine where you can sort of pump in dollars for advertising and, and you know, get a return on investment. Now, does it uh, really cost... Is it that it really cost that much to get new users or was it just because everyone was doing the same type of game there wasn't any differentiating factor because when there were new genres that came out so for example the match three genre that was introduced on facebook and even some of these more strategy games you know they didn't have to necessarily spend as much money it seems because they were they were hitting an audience that was underserved right right i mean it's always about it's a combination of factors right yeah um at the time you know I guess early, late 2008, early 2009. Yeah. And there were a lot of uh, copycat type games, and uh, there were a lot of small studios that were sort of trying to follow that mold. And so, you know, for small studios, it's always uh, kind of dangerous to kind of go out and um, experiment with things. And so, uh, you know, for my group included, we tried to move forward with a concept that um, we felt like uh, the general audience would appreciate. But uh, we were also, you know, very green in terms of our ability to de- design a good game. Okay. So yeah, I learned a lot. From were you pop- were you doing PHP games at that time, or was it Flash? It was Flash. Okay. Yeah. So you know, uh, our backend was PHP, but frontend is Flash. Yeah. I mean, the reason I also delve into this is because actually today um, there was an article on TechCrunch. So this is March uh, 16, 2012, and that game called Draw Something which was done by, you know, a smaller studio has now surpassed Zynga in terms of the top Facebook game, which is kind of interesting. I mean, it's yeah. maybe it's a, a credit to the potential of mobile, but well, it also, I think, points out the fact that, you know, they, they came at it from a different point of view. It wasn't a traditional RPG decoration type thing. You know, they 
they got the Pictionary game and they added the right mechanics, a asynchronous communication, asynchronous interaction, to to make it accessible to everyone. Sure, I think uh, the story though is um, not quite right though because uh, yeah, sure. OMG Pop is not exactly a small studio. No, they're not small. Yeah, well, not yeah. They have 40. I mean, they're funded, right? <laughs> right. And they've been around for quite some time. Plus, their game concept isn't exactly original either. Or, yeah. yeah. Okay. Actually, David and I came from a company that, that was working on that exact same concept. Yeah. <laughs> which, uh, no, which I think also, you know, which also, I think brings up a really good point because people are like, well, there were other games just like this, Charadium, and, you know, even Mini Painters and some of these. And I think Mini Painters was even done in Corona. And these are like drawing games, but really, why why do you think it is that Draw Something succeeded and these other games failed? Was it because those other games were real-time and, and Draw Something's asynchronous or what? Well, the the game that our company tried to do was also asynchronous, um, but it was on Facebook. And uh, I, I just think with games where you have audiences playing with you know other players at the same time, it does help a lot to have an existing user base to cross-promote to. Um, and oh my God, Pop uh, does have an existing um, it's audience. OMG. Oh, sorry. Oh, OMG. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did, did yeah? Did I say it was Oh my God, Pop? I don't know. No, it's, that's it's OMG. Pop. Okay. Anyway, um, but yeah. But, so I mean, I, I think that definitely has uh, something to do with it in terms of priming, you know, priming the game. To well, hang on, hang on. So, so. I, I think it's definitely uh, interesting and worth it to the audience to figure out exactly why it is that one game can kind of succeed, have small right. success, and then this other game is now like the number one. It's the number one revenue producer on iPhone. It's like you know, it's yeah, it's, it's surpassed. Yeah. So I mean, I think it's really a credence to the fact that indie developers have to understand these mechanics. You're right. OMG Pop isn't an indie studio, but Still, given given the fact that they had very few hits before this, or nothing huge, they had all right hits, but definitely not in this in this level of success. And you know, I think it's you know, you were talking about how your the company that you were with was actually developing potentially a Pictionary type game. Now, right. was that was that actually released, or did it ever get to fruition? Or well, it was still in development, and it was out there. People were playing it, but oh, okay. they, they they had never pumped any marketing dollars behind it. Um, because the company actually just went down like before um, they were able to. And, and um, go ahead. Oh, oh. well, hang on. Well, I'm, hang on. I'm, I'm actually hearing actually an echo that. right now. So is there a way to? You're hearing what? Oh, I was hearing an echo of my voice, um, oh, <laughs> which cool. is fine. But maybe what it is is because on mobile, since it's a touch screen, it's more intuitive or it's more fun. It could literally yeah. be just that one little thing. You know, I yeah, think I think that's the difference because even when you're when you're trying to use a mouse to draw these things, it's not as fun. You know, I think that's true. It was that's true. It was difficult to draw um, on the mouse, um, and only experienced artists were really able to get anything that looked nice uh, yeah. on the Facebook platform. So, yeah, you might be right. Uh, the interface definitely is. Yeah, and when and when you think about artist therapy, you know, art is a way of relaxation. I think it's it's more fun when you can actually do it you know, naturally versus having to use a mouse to do it. But who knows? I, I think it's always interesting to look at why one thing's a success and others aren't. And sometimes it can just be one little thing. Um, yeah. So so well, getting, yeah, go ahead. I mean, that's an interesting point because uh, it seems like, you know, with, with um, everyone trying to figure out what's successful or not successful in this space, I, I find it more often than not that it's not just one thing. It's yeah, usually yeah. a lot of things. It's so many different things. I actually, yeah, so, I misspoke. I, what, I've, what I think is probably most effective, is it's kind of like pillars. It's multiple dimensions, right. and you have to optimize those three to ten or you know, three to seven 
critical dimensions. But it isn't just one dimension. But sometimes people can have six of those seven dimensions, right? Right. And they're missing that one dimension, and that could literally make the difference. Yeah. And, okay. And that's that's what I mean. But you're right. It isn't it isn't just one thing. I'm trying to figure out because you know people are like, well, why is it that this game is 10 million, and then you have these literally? I mean, there were other Pictionary games even on mobile. Yeah. yeah. And part of it is you know that those were real time, or they tried to they said they were for kids. You know, the good thing about Draw Something is it's you know kids may play it or whatever, kind of like in the case with Mini Painters, but um, it can be a ton of other other people who play it mm-hmm. um but yeah I, I don't know i think it's it's still exciting to hear but getting back to the to the mobile um so y- you folks decided to do mobile um what what type of game did you did you two decide to do so actually when we started um we had an original idea um that was totally different from can cat um but we actually found we kind of took a step back and realized that the game we were making was way too way too sort of content heavy and complicated and uh, we wanted to do something more simple and more um, just uh, just more viscerally sort of uh, appealing to to a mainstream audience and uh, so what we did was we actually decided like we don't really know what the the game concept should be so we said you know we need to iterate quickly um, to figure out what concept we should make and uh, we originally decided you know we should take the next eight weeks or so and make a game prototype every week like literally okay. just from from you know Thursday to the to the next Thursday we would come up with an idea we would implement it I would do the art uh, Don would would code it up and we would have something that was barely working so that you know you could play like maybe one level of something um, and so we did that for like three or four weeks until we actually got burnt out and we yeah. were just too exhausted from the sprints um, but we at the end of that we had uh, three or four really good uh, prototypes that we could show people um and go ahead well develop you know talking about that process of prototyping we all know that we we need to prototype and we need to do tons of prototypes but how do you keep that process fun i mean the fact that you were working with someone else i think can help yes you know that definitely helps a lot because i know it's really difficult even for me if i want to do prototyping to do it alone it's it's not as fun um i know some people can do it i've interviewed some people on the show who can do it but um i mean how did you guys keep the prototyping fun. And if you're using Corona, how, why would it take a week? Why not just do it, say, in one day? Like, Because it seems like with Corona, you can actually prototype something very compelling still within one day. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess what it comes down to is maybe I'm not that great of a programmer. <laughs> okay. But uh, no, I mean, no, oh, yeah, or you're just picking up the, the, the tool initially. You know, it gets easier over time, but maybe when you're first starting out, it's more challenging. I mean, what it comes down to is, uh, you know, when we're coming up with prototypes, it's usually just something that we've never done before, right? Okay. So from week to week, it's not like, oh, I'm going to take this, you know, existing mechanic and uh, build upon that, like on the next week. Instead, we chose like entirely different games, and so there's systems that you need to build out and um, and yeah. test. And so while you're prototyping, it isn't just a matter of like, oh, I'm just going to build this one mechanic. It's like let's build something that's playable, right? Yeah. So like, for instance, our very first prototype was uh, like a whack-a-mole game, right? And I've seen people go, oh, yeah, I did this in two days. But what we're trying to do is we want to innovate on the mechanic. It wasn't just a whack-a-mole. It was like a proximity-based whack-a-mole. So it's like when you tapped on one guy, he acted as a bomb and triggered all these other bombs. And then you had like these bunnies walking around that you had to avoid. So and it, they were more like mini-games than just mechanic prototypes. Gotcha. You know, another one was like a gesture-based shooter. So I had to write code for... 
um, recognizing gestures, you know, using like a you know, unistroke, or yeah. and then combining that with the shooter, and so I do you know calling and collision detection, all that sort of stuff. So they're more like mini games than mechanics. So that's why it didn't take two days; it took a week. You know, plus plus we yeah. we put a constraint on ourselves to actually come up with the idea that we would do for that week, like in one day. So it, the brainstorming as, aspect, you know, the ideation aspect also had to occur within that week because we, we didn't want to go into this process having like 50 ideas and then, and then just implement. We, we actually yeah, wanted yeah. To, to have that process of like deciding on an idea like quickly. It's, it's like from end to end, you know, what if we were to, you know, complete, you know, start, start the whole process you know, from day one and ended on day seven. Yeah. So with um with the gesture recognition, there there's actually a library, I think, in Corona, like a shared library, one of those shared libraries where you can, where they have gesture recognition. Mm-hmm. Did you look into that or did you have to implement it all on your uh, own? Yeah, I saw that. Uh and I tried it out, but I ended up writing my own because uh, you know, it it's two parts. One is, you know, there was an issue that I found with it that I didn't quite like, and then two, I wanted to be able to understand the algorithm too extend upon it to be able to do like multiple character recognition yeah so yeah you know there haven't been that many games um at least using corona that that utilize gesture recognition did you discover anything as you were prototyping gesture recognition do you feel that's a viable mechanic or interface for you know a potentially mainstream game well i think with uh any concept i mean it's still i mean there aren't a lot of games that have gesture mechanics um typically you, know, you draw a gesture and it might cast a spell or something like that, right? Um, so I, I still think there's there are possibilities that are unexplored. Uh, it's just that um, you know it, it, they take time to develop. Uh, and so you know while we were working on these different prototypes, it kind of dawned upon us that we should really sort of you know go towards simpler mechanics uh, that are a little bit more proven, so that we can actually get a game out versus uh, be stuck in this exploratory phase for an indefinite amount of time. You mentioned um, two of the prototypes that you did. Can you mention the other remaining prototype or the other two prototypes that that you also worked on? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, sure. It's been been a while. Uh, So we did, uh, yeah, Proximity Base Wagamole. We did... I mean, we've done other little games. Like we did a pet simulation game. We also did a, a word game. Yeah, you know, we okay. were called Ginger versus the World, where instead of uh, just the typical like, um, here are the letters you have now. You know, sort of create a word out of them. We actually allowed the player to create any word using uh, one or more of the letters available. And so, you know, we tried. A, we were trying a whole bunch of different ideas and. Uh, now, a lot of the ideas, it seems like, were mainly single player. Did you look, because, you know, you were, you were talking about having experience with the Facebook uh, gaming space. Did you look into multi, or prototype multiplayer concepts? No, uh, mostly because it's it's a matter of manpower. You know, it's just yeah. David and I. And, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, um, we wanted to innovate on the game design side of things. And to kind of toss in a backend server and sort of some sort of system mechanics with with regards to social mechanics, I mean, it just complicates things a lot more. Plus, from a business perspective, like I said, um, it's it's much more complicated to get a user base, you know, sort of primed and ready, and and that that's a whole other sort of marketing thing that you need to like. But also, to be fair, some of the top okay, aside from Angry Birds, you're right. There there are single player games that have done well, but there are also 
a lot of the top grossing apps, it seems, at least on iPhone, were multiplayer or, or kind of these social type of games. Sure, yeah. sure. And no, I don't know, that, but that th- isn't necessarily true. There are some physics games, so I'm not, I'm not saying that it's completely social. Right. Well, you know, to, to be uh, kind of honest and fair about all this, I mean, David and I are talking about doing a sort of um, p- potentially multiplayer game with some social mechanics, but it's sort of embedded within a, a single-player experience still. Uh, and so that's a much larger endeavor, though. But but the problem is, like for for David and I, um, we like to create very extremely polished experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So with Cannon Cat, for instance, um, it's a very simple game when you look at it. Uh, simple mechanic, you know, simple flow and everything. But like we paid a lot of attention to detail to everything, every aspect of it. So yeah, I think I think the the point is um, we were talking before earlier in the call about um, you know what are what are the success stories like what are the common sort of patterns and success stories what why are certain apps successful while while others aren't and the one thing pattern that I see in terms of all the successful apps that are on the on the top list is that they take a very simple concept but they polish it really well like they they execute it very very well and yeah. and it's very focused. Um, and I think that, if anything, that is something that we wanted to do and, and we saw as, as a way to, to succeed was to just, you know, f- focus on something that is in, initially very fun to someone, easy to pick up, and then, you know, polish it and really execute on that experience to, to the utmost. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, so you're not in favor of the concept of maybe even doing a soft release that's unpolished just to see if people are liking the idea. Then after that, Maybe even pull it out and then polish it up. Well, we because actually the, tried that. Uh, okay. we, I mean, we actually tried that, and uh, you know, a lot of people were giving us that same exact advice. They said, you know, just put it out there. Let's see what yeah, yeah. people think. And and we liked that from an iterative, iterative standpoint, and that like was in line with our philosophy. But when we actually did it, you know, um, we got maybe six hundred users <laughs> well, on the first day. You know what? Let's. I mean, it kind of, uh, how can I say this? <laughs> Basically, it's all about context, right? Yeah. Um, I am a total believer in terms of iterative design and getting feedback and yeah. then iterating based on that and doing that as quickly as possible. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, you know, Canicat, or at least the sort of the prototype version that we put out there on the market, you know, which we renamed Canicat Lite, um, it's, uh, you know, when we put that out there, I guess, you know, we, we got a certain number of downloads, but we really had no idea what was, like, a definition for success. Yeah. You know, we saw 600, and we're like, oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah. Yeah, and, but that's pretty good. <laughs> but, yeah, and that's what that's I what, found out later. Yeah, later on, people were um, like, oh, that's you know, I, I was, was this on iPhone or on Android? It was on iPhone. On iPhone. Oh, okay. Well, I, so, I, you know, really, honestly, we just don't know, like, what it means to be successful on day one with, you know, no marketing and, you know, hoping for organic growth. Yeah. But after, like, talking with the uh, Yobanja guys, you know, the this, this story was kind of different from them, and we kind of learned, like, actually 600 on day one, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah. Right. Um, and so who knows how things could have developed if we just kept on iterating and iterating. And iterating. But, yeah. I mean, know, well, it, after those 600 downloads, what did you decide? Did you decide to pull it from the market, or were you getting feedback, or what? Well, okay, so it was it was useful in that we actually got a lot of user data from that, and the thing that we wanted from that initial release was: is this good? You know, like is this worth going forward with as as a company? And we from the data we saw that people were playing it quite a bit, and we were initially you know um, worried about you know engagement levels, whether they would come back to this game, whether they get frustrated or not, and everyone who was playing it 
kept playing it and, and played it for very long amounts of time uh, over many days. And so we, we said, okay, there's something here. Um, but after that, we, we didn't you know iterate on um, any more public releases. We just said, we're going to hunker down and make this like a really polished game and then come out and make a big splash you know, when, when we are done with this game, when we have a very polished product. Did you then pull it from the market or, or did yeah. you? Okay. Well, it took, it took a while. It took a while for us to pull it from the market because we were looking at the data. We we're trying to figure out, you know, what exactly we need to do in order to improve the numbers. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I was also working on Sprite Lock related things. And David wasn't even full time with us, you know, yeah. until later. So, um, so for the listeners out there, the timeline, once you came up with the Canon Cat idea, how long did it take to get something that you actually did release on iPhone? Like, was that over the course of a few weeks or a few months or? I don't know. It's it's a blur. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's around, I would say, to, if I was to estimate, it would probably be one to one and a half months, I would say. Okay. It's not bad. And then, but then after that, you pulled it out and then you decided to polish it a lot more. Right. Yes. Okay. And the thing about that polish, though, is, I mean, if you're already getting good numbers, um, I mean, that's that's different. I mean, what, what inspired you, you know, for, for developers who kind of have a game out there already, mm -hmm. what, what inspired you to say, you know what, I'm going to pull it out and just polish it a lot more, given that the fact that the polish might actually take longer than the initial development? Right. It, yeah, and that's been our experience, definitely. Um, but I think... Uh, the other thing you have to know is that the, our numbers went down very quickly after that initial okay. launch. Um, so there wasn't any foreseeable organic growth that was happening without any marketing to, to or you know or without it. further updates either. You know, yeah, yeah, so. no so, further updates. Yeah. So then, do you feel that maybe it wasn't even about the polish? The time should have been spent then on just purely marketing the game. You know, instead of spending time on polishing. Yeah, yeah. See, that's it's one of those things okay. where um, you only really have like one one try at it to to really figure things out, and and sort of the time has elapsed, and and we kind of look back on the experience and we're like, yeah, you know, we we could have potentially just kept on iterating it and had a sort of slow organic you know growth with a long tail, and I think that's how you know uh, some other companies or some other people I've known who've gained success yeah. uh, were able to do things. And so I think that's a totally valid approach because it's working for them. But right. you know, the other, the, the the flip side of that is, you know, the other, um, you know, really polished games that are out there in the marketplace. Because yeah, you can put out a game and iterate on it, but at the same time, like you're competing against <laughs> really big studios yes. with huge budgets, and people are going to, you know, look at your game and make a snap judgment based on your icon and your screenshots, right? Okay. Yeah, and it's so. a hard sell. I mean, like. It, even the people who you know might become loyal followers, it's hard to say, "Hey, don't worry, it's gonna get really good. Just hang on a little bit longer." While all of these amazing games are coming out, you know, vying for your attention, it's it's hard, you know. Well, when you decided to polish it, what what did that exactly entail? I mean, for the listeners out there, when they think of polish, they might have a certain concept in mind. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, were you just looking at the artwork? I mean, what are the dimensions of polish that you feel? We're going going to be critical for this game to be successful. Well, uh, when we put out our game, you know, we looked at it and we we're like, okay, we got these downloads, but how are we how are we going to make money off of this game, right? And so there are only a couple of options. It's either going to be ninety nine cent download, 
possibly you know uh, in-app purchases or advertisements, yeah. right? And so, based on all the information that we've gathered and our prior experience in you know Facebook games at our other company, uh, you know we, we know that in-app purchases you know is where the real action is, right? Yeah. So, um, and plus, like I think David and I both detest ads, and. <laughs> yeah. And you know, recurring income is you know a really nice thing. So um, because you know we're selling Sprite Lock, and, and that's like a one-time thing too. It's you know no recurring. Oh, income. Yeah. So so we really wanted a recurring income. So we decided we wanted to go with IAP. So um, after we sort of said, okay, we got this app out. We need income. You know, how are we going to get there? What do we need to do to this game? So we looked at all the aspects from uh, game you know gameplay to graphics to sound. You know, just design through and through. So, but we paid careful attention to the user experience, how they were um, sort of you know engaging the game, learning the different mechanics in there, um, you know, understanding the different systems involved. You know, how does virtual currency work in this world now? You know, um, so yeah, when we think of polish, I mean, it's not one thing. It's not just graphics. It's everything. Everything. Yeah, you know, it's okay. the messaging. Like, how do we? How do we uh, come across with the right description? You know, how do we do? You know, better marketing. Uh, it's, yeah. it's just iterating on all aspects. Uh, well, um, for the audience out there, can you describe the gameplay and the game mechanics in Cannon Cat? Yeah. Uh, so the basic mechanic is you you have a cat and uh, he's <laughs> and he's launching. You're launching the cat from one cannon to the next cannon, um, and eventually you want him to get through a, a portal, a sort of finish line a, a, at the end. Um, but in between, you have obstacles. The cannons themselves are moving and sliding around. So it's basically a one-touch timing game where you have to launch the cat at the right time, at the right angle, etc. Um, with one touch. So there's no aiming, there's no, um, well, there's a little bit of aiming, but basically the only interface that you're doing is do, is a one-touched um, to fire. Um, and so it's just basically a timing um, skill-based uh, game. Yeah, but uh, the, the thing that makes the game challenging is that you need to collect these skyfish that have been imprisoned by an uh, evil emu. <laughs> by an evil emu and you know, his sort of uh, penguin, you know, flying penguin army. And... Um, you know, the thing is, uh, the setting is uh, in the future. It's kind of like a sci-fi, kind of cute, kick-ass adventure kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we wanted the, the cat to have uh, special abilities. So mm-hmm. unlike other games, I mean, you might liken our game to something like uh, Donkey, Kong's, uh, Donkey Kong Country's like barrel blast mechanic. Mm-hmm. But um, what we are doing that's really different is that we actually have power-ups for our character. So, for instance... Um, He's got, you know, a shield. He can slow down time. He can uh, magnify like the size of the fish, so they're easier to free. Um, you know, and, and we'll probably come up with additional power-ups along the way. So it adds a different dimension to the game, and also, you know, can really help people who are struggling with the mechanic. And <clears throat> when you talk, uh, you know, going back to the polish, you're talking about polishing multiple dimensions. What? I guess aside from artwork and maybe the virtual currency design, what were other things that you focused on in terms of polish? Was that also the size of the app, the uh, the speed within the app, you know, the graphics and all that, or or what else? Yeah, um, we we spend a lot of time optimizing the game. Um, I mean, with Corona, you know, it's it's pretty fast, but we were really pushing it to its limits. You know, we're trying to yeah. maintain a solid sixty FPS all the time. 
and uh, it's it's kind of odd because like every time uh, you know we we know Carlos and Walter uh, personally from Corona, yeah. and um, yeah, so every time we're talking to them, they're like, oh, you know, what can we do to help you guys? And we're like, we need more speed, we need more speed, you know, like yeah. we can never get enough. <laughs> um, and so you know, I, I did a lot of work with regards to like optimizing code, optimizing graphics. Yeah, how did you did you were you able to get up to the sixty frames per second or what's, what's yeah so for for the most part uh, the game is uh, you know sixty fps we still are polishing that you know as we speak in terms of like we have a couple stages that have a lot of stuff going on just like just so many things are going on so we we were trying to polish it even further uh, well there's like a new graphics API I think out in Corona have you been using that yeah so. Really, what it comes down to is those optimizations. Uh, the 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 bulk of the speed up is through culling, yeah. so and that's sort of under the hood. It's already done for you. Um, but beyond that, uh, yeah, I've done tests with regards to like you know the Fishies application, right? And on m- newer devices, the speed up isn't as dramatic as it is on older devices. So what it comes down to is if you've been optimizing your application using the sort of tried and true techniques with regards to like. You know, don't do unnecessary things, and you know, access your properties correctly. Try to use the physics engine to move your stuff. You know, um, if you're doing all that sort of stuff, then the sort of sprite optimizations really help you. If you need calling, if you don't need calling, then the speed up is sort of minor. Um, okay. And for you guys, you already had calling implemented, or so. So that, yeah, that's an interesting story because initially I, I built uh, my own culling, um, but I didn't know that property access was slowing it down. So, okay. and when you say property access for the audience out there, I mean you're talking about literally having like dot x and dot y assigning those values, or exactly. So, um, just so the object dot x, object dot y, or object dot rotation and stuff like that. Right. So this is only with respect to display objects. Uh, first off. So if you ever need to access like the um, translation properties, this, the rotation or scaling properties, so dot x, dot y, x scale, x, y scale, and rotation, uh, just referencing those properties will slow your application down. And so you know, what, what you had to do, um, I think before these optimizations that Corona put in, is that uh, you had to cache these properties and then use the functions like uh, scale, was it, yeah, scale, Rotate and uh, translate, okay. and those provide a big speed up. Okay, um, and then what about size of the app? Um, you know, Corona does use compression for iPhone, but for Android, they don't have any compression. So, did you look into stuff for that too? Well, first off, uh, we don't think we're going to be releasing on Android anytime soon. <laughs> well, yeah, for the audience out there, what what inspired that? Um, <laughs> Of, of doing iPhone versus Android, because it seems like iPhone is, you know, very saturated. Um, uh, well, what, what it comes down to is um, opportunity cost, okay. right? And the thing is, you know, we only have so many man hours, and um, with all the stories that we've heard with regards to the difficulty of supporting Android devices because of the, you know, various uh, specs on all the devices, we felt like, you know, it's probably best to try to all of our resources making the best game possible on one platform, and if that's a success, then attempt to port it you know, uh, successfully to other platforms. Um, and I know that's sort of like going against the grain with regards to like Corona trying to be everywhere. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I, 
I have a different philosophy with regards to that. I mean, I'd rather have like one tool or one game that is excellent on one platform than to try to you know create something that's okay on everything. That's so, that's really bold. I mean, that's that's very different because I mean, from my point of view, I'm like, you just don't know with iPhone. You know, some of these things can blow up. And some of them sure. may not even work on iPhone, but they blow up on Android. And you know, you you, yeah. you referenced Blast Monkeys, and yeah. Blast Monkeys, yeah. I think, initially was on iPhone and yep. iOS, but it didn't work there. And then they finally got their breakthrough on Android. Yeah. And then they so, proved that. So, you know what I'm saying? So if they would have just stuck to the same philosophy you're talking about now, mm-hmm. who knows if they would have even gotten? Now they've, I think, they've reached over like you know, several million installs, but they may yeah. have never even reached that point had they actually just focused on iPhone. Right, you're totally right. Uh, well, you know what it comes down to is you kind of make your bets and you see how they play out. Um, and <laughs> Don't you so, have to hedge your hedge your bets or like like hedge well, the risk? There's, there's I two mean, philosophies to investment, right? You either put all your eggs in one basket yeah. and and really watch that basket, <laughs> or you spread your eggs into different. Well, baskets. in this case, that basket could be Corona. It doesn't have to be iOS, right? Like. That's- yeah, that's true. But uh, what what it comes down to is, um, you know, also with regards to like testing, right? Okay. Uh, I I only have one Android device, and we're already sort of like at our memory limits with regards to our game. So, um, you know, looking at the sort of audience that we want to cater to, our sort of monetization model, we felt like our game would probably work best from a business standpoint on the iOS versus Android. Yeah. But so. You know, we're also considering the Nook, you know, um, and other potential platforms if they make sense from a business standpoint. Yeah, but we we we'd have to change our monetization model for those different platforms. Oh yeah, yeah. You know. they yeah. So at the time, right, um, Android IAP was not available while we were devving. Okay, right? good point. That was that was a recent thing, so it was just like, well, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, we'll we'll deal with that later, basically. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's. I'm always fascinated by hearing that philosophy of you know focusing on one thing because. That is, you know, it definitely can work. I mean, you know, that's what Apple does, right? Like they, mm-hmm. they kind of, you know, you know, they did that with iPad. They did it with iPhone. Versus when you look at, say, the Windows or Microsoft approach, where it's just constant iteration, you know, and and even the Android approach, where it's just constant iteration. It isn't perfection at first, just yeah. pure iteration. And now we're seeing that that kind of has won out to an extent. Um, you know, iPhone is still definitely a viable platform, but you're looking at Android now leapfrogging iPhone in terms of activations and everything else. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That, that's why I'm always fascinated to hear what the motivation is, is for someone or some studio that's going to take, take that stance where they just focus on one platform. Well, I think um, it's also about the experience that we want to create for the end user. It's all about the experience when it comes down to it. You know, uh, do, would I... I, I just kind of feel like we wouldn't be able to, you know, deliver the same experience on, on the Android platform as we can on the iOS. So if we were to support Android, we would have to modify certain things in our game, you know. And uh, since it's just the two of us, I feel like it's it's best to sort of focus. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, as you were developing and polishing up this game, were there any other realizations or, uh, yeah, just methodologies or processes that you use to, to raise the quality of the game? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, uh, you know, David is primarily responsible for most of the graphics, and I, I do all the code. Uh, but we work on design together with regards to like level design and mechanics. 
but you know, when we iterate, usually you know, David will draw something and then I kind of have a comment about it, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, you know, I'll give him feedback and it's not always appreciated. No, 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 that's not true. But um, it's more like it's difficult when you're collaborating with another person and you want to be honest, but you don't want to hurt their feelings, you know? Yeah. And so something that we developed over time is an understanding of uh, what it means to give and take feedback and how to, you know, constructively give that to someone and to sort of set expectations for that. So I think that was a really important lesson for us is that, you know, uh, someone who's working on something and wants to show it off to someone, like they have to be aware of, I guess, the sort of uh, feedback that they're going to get initially. And it's usually an emotional response, which is not always kind or useful. Uh, But then later on, you know, if someone thinks about it long enough, they can sort of give you a constructive way to alter um, what it is they're looking at. So, you know, we actually wrote a blog post about this um, as a result to sort of solidify the lessons that we've learned because, you know, since we are sort of in a working relationship here, (laughs) uh, we want to make sure that, um, you know, all these sort of tensions are resolved and, you know, kind of move forward. Uh, Yeah, it's it's one of those things where, I mean, I, I cannot imagine making a game on my own um, after this experience just because yeah. it, it is so, so, <laughs> I mean, just like valuable to get constructive, honest feedback that that um, isn't, you know, um, it, you know, if you ask your family and friends, there's always that little bit of like, well, they're my family and friends, so are they being really honest with me? Yeah. You know, and when someone is a business partner, you know, their ass is on the line too. So they want to have a good product. And so you can, you can definitely be sure that they're going to be honest. And, and again, well, you that, hope they will, well, you hope they will, yeah, um, yeah. you know, and, and the thing is like, that also is, you know, it creates tension and creates conflict. And, you know, Don and I don't always agree. Um, and, but that's a good thing. Um, I think if I did this myself, you know, I would have made a lot of, I mean, this, it'd be a completely different game. Um, so yeah. I, I think it's a good thing. Well, a lot of the listeners <clears throat> who are hobbyists, they'll usually work on the game alone. And I know that that, that can really be impeding because you, sometimes you can cut corners, you know, you miss certain things, you know, sometimes that feedback between two people can really help. How, um, how are you two able to do that given that you had these other obligations too? You know, like meeting up. I mean, that's one of the reasons why people might just work on their own project alone. Because it's just easier to go home or whatever else. And, you know, instead of meeting, like, were you two meeting in person? Were you meeting over Skype? Or how did you do that? Well, the uh, in the beginning, we, we would meet face-to-face. But over time, I mean, I'm used to working, you know, telecommuting and working over Skype. Because uh, in my prior endeavors, uh, you know, I've had people in Maryland and Los Angeles. Well, I'm in San Francisco. Uh, and so... You sort of develop a process, and um, that doesn't really happen unless you have an understanding of the other person's abilities and responsibilities. So, but with regards to like uh, working solo, you know, uh, or not having face-to-face contact with someone else, it's really important to get out there and get as much feedback as possible from people, from strangers, from anyone. You kind of have to, you know, I mean, if you're doing this as a business and not as a hobby, you really need to get out there and do everything you can and not, you know, be shy about it. You know, just go into a cafe, 
just ask someone, hey, uh, I'm working on a game. Would you like to try it out? <laughs> no, you just need to be that you know, sort of bold. Um, Where, right. Have you done that before? Um, yeah. That's, yeah, that's pretty crazy. I mean, that's cool. You know, I, I know that's what people need to be doing. It's just very difficult, you know, because it's... Well, well one way uh, which Don has found works is uh, you make a little sign, like a little cardboard sign. Yeah. And it just says, you know, I'm working on a game. Uh, if you'd like to try it out, you know, come ask me, you know. Like, <laughs> if you're really that, like, you know, you can't approach strangers, like, I would say that's, that's one good way. To- well, the thing is, what do you really have to lose? They're strangers. Oh, yeah. No, I guess I just... I guess yeah. in my mind, I'm just like, well, they're probably busy with other stuff, you know, and they're just going to mm-hmm. play it out of, you sure. know, out of I mean, grudging, grudgingness. And I'm just always hesitant about that. But hey, if it works, it works. Yeah. You know? Well, my, my point, though, is that, um, you know, you still have to pick and choose yeah. probably. But most of the time, if people are at a cafe, you know, they're probably going to relax. So that's probably a good place to, to go. Yeah. Um, um, and when did you guys decide that the polishing was done and it's time to actually market it and release it? That is by far the probably the most pressing question we had in the past. Like, well, the thing years. is, uh, we sort of got lucky uh, in a sense that um, we went to a Founder Space event that was uh, in San Francisco, okay. um, and it was about marketing your app. And so, you know, we we were polishing it. We felt sort of confident about things, uh, but we we were still unsure. So we went to this event, and we ended up meeting up with a lot of people and making contacts and. Uh, and one of the biggest pieces of advice was you know, improving our icon, right? Yeah. And so um, after going to that event, you know, we started looking at all aspects of the game, you know, beyond just improving the icon. And the more I thought about it, the more I started, you know, reflected on people's feedback. And whenever someone said something was okay, I felt like we needed to polish it. Yeah. If it was like, oh, that's good or that's great, then that's good enough. But if okay. it's just like, uh, eh, that, that requires polish. Yeah. Okay. Um, and for marketing your app, uh, did you get any other good tips on ways to market it? Because, you know, that's, that's what people always talk about. They're like, well, now anyone can do an app. It's really about marketing and standing out. What, what are your feelings on that? Well, that, the thing is, I, I can't say what works and what doesn't work because we haven't launched yet. Yeah. And I don't know whether what I'm trying now is going to work. Um, however, I, I, I will say that the reason why we understand that's a huge issue, uh, and we knew that from the very beginning, that that'd be a huge hurdle to, to overcome and, and to tr- sort of figure out. And so whatever polish that we did to the game, we knew that that'd be a little bit less effort on our part to market. Because if we had something that was inherently amazing and good and we were proud of to show to other people and we know that they would like it, then it's way less work for us to sort of convince other people that this is a good game. Um, beyond that, you know, we're doing all the same things that everyone else is doing. We're you're contacting, you know, review sites. We're trying to you know, uh, talk to people who who you know, know what Apple is looking for in terms of you know like an app that they might feature. We're we're you know trying to network as much as possible, um, and talk to you know people like you who are interested in in indie games. Um, but you know what works, what doesn't. I I don't know yet. I really can't say. Well, I I think for me, uh, anytime I, I think about marketing, I always think about telling an interesting story. You know, if you kind of go into it and you're doing your, you know, something that everyone else has done, that's true. Yeah. That's that's not inherently interesting. I mean, marketing is all all about capturing people's attention. So, if you're doing something different, 
uh, or you have an interesting story to tell, like that's the way you got to do it. You know? Yeah, it's it's a uh, yeah, that's true. That was one of the pieces of feedback we got from that um, was sort of what is your elevator pitch? What is your differentiating you know point? And people want to know, you know, want to be interested in your game just from that one sentence about you know that you say about your game, or, or even just who you are, you know. Yeah. And and what's your elevator pitch done for the game? <laughs> well, we we've had we've been playing around with a few of them, but one of them was actually just uh, about us, and we were saying, okay, rocket scientist, genius programmer, get together, <laughs> can and cat, <laughs> which is like this sort of sci-fi, you know, like uh, it's it's very futuristic sort of game, but. Uh, in terms of our game, like in terms of selling the game itself, you know, um, the main the main thing about that is we think it's a game that anyone can pick up, uh, but it's hard to master, and it's it's something that um, uh, is a very easy interface. It's a one tap touch, you know, anyone can get into it. Um, but and unlike other physics sort of puzzler games, it's sort of more based on timing rather than sort of this uh, sort of like an rather than like an aiming Angry Birds type mechanic or or um, or sort of like a puzzler where you're trying to like get the pieces in the right order, you know, to, to solve it. So it, it does have a, a different sort of take on on that whole um, sort of casual physics type game. And what's your audience? What's going to be your target audience? Is it going to be men, women, both? Um, is there any specific demographic you're targeting? No, not really. When it, when it comes right. down to it, is we want to make uh, the game approachable for for anyone and. It's it's really difficult to do because you don't know, like for instance, how kids will react. Because we we have some you know strange concepts in the game, right? And it's kind of sci-fi, uh, but it's still really cute and approachable. And I've had men and women both you know comment about uh, how great the game looks and plays. So we hope it will be appealing to to everyone. Okay. Um, and when is the game expected to come out? We hope early April. Early April. Yeah. We still have some stuff to do with it, and you know, there's always the uh, app review process that we have to wait for. So, okay. Yeah. Um, and then what's what's next in store? So now that you know you've got this game pretty much polished up, you're about to submit it and have it released. Um, what's the next step? Well, ne- the immediate next step is just see what happens. Right? And then, Let me uh, look into my crystal ball. Yeah. How yeah. I mean, well it does, you know, yeah. we'll have to support it, create more levels. Um, you know, if, if it bombs, then I don't know. We'll have to figure out, you know, what to do next. But it, Go on Kickstarter, raise <laughs> yeah, funds. Exactly. Yeah. What, what do you think about Kickstarter then as a way to just promote your game in general, right? And not even to get the funds, just to get exposure. Yeah, we've uh, talked about that a lot, and uh, the thing is, like, it's weird because, like, with Kickstarter, people usually make um, you know really weird games or games okay. that might be like pay you know to uh, sorry like they're, they're um, downloadable games that you, that you pay to download. But ours is you know, has IP in it, right? So it's like it's kind of uh, kind of weird because it's going to be free. So if we were to get on Kickstarter, we'd have to just offer people. You know, um, a whole bunch of different items like T-shirts or mugs or whatever. I'm not sure yet, but um, well, what's cool is that you actually have a game that's about done. You know, versus other people who would just talk about it and say we're going to do it. You have something that's working. Well, it's not that bad. done. We're, we're, I really feel like we're at the beginning of Canada. Okay. You know, but um, I think yeah, Kickstarter would definitely help if people just want to see more of the sort of zaniness we put in the game. You know, like yeah. a cat flying out of a cannon, saving. Skyfish. <laughs> I mean, most people 
imagine like you know the, the guy is eating the fish or yeah. and i mean i see some of these special things that people can sponsor like literally having their own character in the game or something mm-hmm. else like that um but yeah i don't know i mean kickstarter i mean you've heard about that uh that famous adventure game or whatever that's now gotten funded um which one um, that was the one, or the Double Fine games or double something? Double Fine, oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, Tim Schafer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they, they raised like over a million bucks in 24 yeah, hours. Like, yeah, well, three million. They, oh it, the total was like three million. And so, you know, I don't, well, maybe, that's, uh, maybe that's part of the innovation <laughs> because I feel like every indie yeah. that makes it big has to find some kind of innovative break. Right. Now, with Blast Monkeys, maybe it was just being on Android at the right time. Right, and even with um, <laughs> draw something or whatever else, you know, they they kind of took a new mechanic, or not a new mechanic, but they took a previous mechanic, but maybe they presented it in a way that was accessible. Mm-hmm. And so the you know maybe for your game, the marketing is what separates it, in addition to the game, you know, the polish of the game. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's just like that double fine games now. Like I would have never heard of it, and right. I would probably have never checked it out. But now I'm kind of curious about what's going to happen once it's out. You know. Yeah, I mean the the whole uh, double fine uh, circumstance or scenario. I mean that's that's a special case. Tim Schafer is famous. Well, I think everyone has to create a special case, right? You, I, I feel like the average game is not going to succeed on these mobile platforms, yeah, right? It's totally right. Um, you know, but I'm just saying why that scenario sort of is special is because Tim Schafer and double is fine special, is special. Right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> and and you know, for us, I mean, like yeah. We were like totally baffled by the whole bubble ball. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, bubble ball. Well, yeah. How do you explain? Yeah, exactly. Right. You explain? That's yeah, like even the even the Anska guys had no idea. Like yeah. even the Apple guy that we talked to, like had no idea. It just happens. But there's yeah. a sto- like you said. There's a story there. There's there's yeah. a hook. I understand that, but honestly, that that game was like number one before everyone knew that guy was fourteen. Yeah, you know what so, I, I, it's, I still can understand. it's still a mystery. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, it's really hard to like sort of nail one thing and say like, "Oh, that's the reason why." It's yeah, successful. exactly. I know. I, I'm just saying. Like, yeah. it it might raise the probability, right? Like the fact that people are hungry. Obviously, people are looking for games on Kickstarter. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's interesting. That I I think it might even be too late for Kickstarter since everyone has now heard of it. <laughs> right. You know, and that could be the issue, but. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think one of the challenges indie developers have to look into, at least in the mobile space too, is is marketing. What, how to get to the top of the charts? Right. You know, there's like things like free app a day, where you literally have to pay tens, you know, thousands of dollars to get to the top of the chart. Right. Or you know, what are other ways that you can get to the top? Well, because I, that's yeah. it isn't normal for most games to get to the top. Yeah, I, I think uh, yeah, to go back to Kickstarter, I think it's totally a viable option. Uh, yeah. If your game is unique, right, or the people who are developing developing it are unique, because um, there's a bunch of Kickstarter projects that don't do, that don't do well. You, know, you go on there, you can see a bunch of games that are partially funded and probably. But are they are they do they have like a playable prototype or a playable version, kind of like yours? Not some of them do, but a lot of them don't. Yeah, a lot of them don't. No, that's, and I think I think a big problem with them, yeah. I, and I that's what really separates your game from everyone else. You know, you have a working version. You have something that potentially players can even check out. Right. I, I mean, I'm just curious. Maybe that will be the way of the future. Mm-hmm. But I'm just concerned that, you know, how are you going to get to the top of the charts? Because from what I can tell of iPhone, it's like you have to be in that top 25. Mm-hmm. Or it's going to be very challenging. 
And I don't know if you guys agree. I mean, it seems like you've done a lot of research into the how how to succeed on iPhone. So I may be mistaken, but how how do you feel that you can succeed in the iPhone space? Like you know, getting exposure. It's a it's a very difficult thing because um, yeah, everyone's trying all the known ways to get to the top. Yeah. Right. And if uh, sort of a technique or whatever, you know, path, pathway is known, then it just gets more expensive over time. Uh, so really, you really have to try to do everything and sort of do guerrilla marketing or, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it might be best for you to interview us like a couple of months from now. Yeah, that, yeah that's <laughs> fine. Then, That'd be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> then you can, yeah, then we can sort of see what we did right or wrong. Um, if we make it big, then, uh, you know, Maybe we can reflect on that and tell you <laughs> what it is we're doing right. But at this yeah. point, we're still at the launching point, so it's uh, we're, we we would definitely try everything. But I think uh, you know with Kickstarter, I think you know usually people uh, don't have a prototype like you're saying. Yeah, people who do have a prototype do better. Uh, but honestly, like I don't know. I guess yeah, it would definitely help us with regards to funds because we're we're currently bootstrapping, right? Yeah. And um, we're essentially using the proceeds from our sales of uh, Spritelock in order to continue developing the game. Yeah. I mean, the way that Don and I have thought about the whole marketing thing is we wanted to create what we called like the perfect storm in the sense that, uh, you know, you don't want to have all these different marketing um, strategies and employ them, you know, in sequence. Like, oh, I'll do this one this week and then I'll get a review this week and then I'll do, you know, this thing, this Kickstarter thing this week. Like, you you want to have everything happening all at the same time um, so that you make this huge sort of splash when, when you do launch so that, um, you know, the rankings, like you said, um, the way they're sort of uh, determined is the past four days right like how how high your app has been going how much growth has been happening in the past four days so you want all that to happen at the, at the same time so you know we've been just basically trying to employ as many different strategies as we can and have it timed right when we're launching okay yeah i i was actually watching a talk by the fruit ninja guy and um he gave a talk at like uh, game developers conference in china and he was talking about, you know, how he orchestrated, you know, coordinated all these different things so that when Fruit Ninja came out, it would all culminate, you know, right. the review from Touch Arcade or all these other things. And so that, you know, it would get that exposure yeah. at the right time. So, right. okay, well, that's that's good to hear. Now, you were talking about Sprite Lock, um, you know, as funding potentially part of your development. What, what exactly is Sprite Lock for the listeners out there? So uh Lock is a tool that allows you to get your flash art assets into Corona. Uh, basically, it lets you export the uh, movie clips or symbols in your, in your flash project as Swifts and export sprite sheets to load them into uh, Corona. So that's, that's pretty much it in a nutshell, but there are other plugins that are available that help you get like layouts and, uh, physics, and... Yeah, physics related stuff into um, Corona more easily using SpriteLock as well. And SpriteLock is optimized to, you know, you were talking about the translation, rotation, right. and some of these scale things. SpriteLock is actually optimized so that it does do it in the most effective and fast way on Corona. Right, so uh, yeah, you could say like half of my time 
working uh, within Lockhart has been spent on SpriteLock. And um, sort of CanonCat is the testbed for all the you know, new features or um, you know, developments in SpriteLock. So with SpriteLock, I uh, spent a lot of time with the Corona API, learning the ins and outs of it, you know, found tons of bugs and workarounds as a result, and have uh, included those in the SpriteLock API. And um, yeah, so, so basically all those optimizations, uh, you know, issues with like event dispatching, um, you know, just all sorts of things have been fixed inside of the SpriteLock API. Uh, and I'll go ahead. Yeah. Basically, uh, you know, in developing SpriteLock, what I want to do is sort of create the, the best tool possible. You know, sort of the mantra that we uh, have for CanonCat in that we want to just make one product really, really, really good. Uh, and that's yeah. why you know, we don't support um, all these other platforms out of the box. Now, what's the benefit of SpriteLock versus some of the code that's like out there in the shared code base where it's like Sprite Grabber or something else like that? That may not grab stuff from Flash, but it al it allows for sprite animations. It provides an interface to do sprite animations in Corona. Yeah, I think the uh, most pleasant thing about SpriteLock is um, how easy it is to use, and also the API. It's extremely easy to use. I don't know how else to say it. It's uh, you know, with Sprite Grabber, you have to specify timing information, frame counts, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, with SpriteLock, it's you know, you just call play. That's it. You just call play this animation. Um, it can deal with references. So you can actually align different uh, objects so that they can overlap on top of each other. Sprite switching is very easy. Um, just everything about it is just a couple of lines of code to do anything. But it's, it's different in that Sprite Grabber requires you to specify a lot of things. All Sprite Lock requires you to do is just call the name of the Sprite you want to animate. Yeah. And um, what about this new uh, Corona Graphics API? Will SpriteLock support that? So currently, you know, SpriteLock is uh, backwards compatible. Uh, it works with, you know, build. What is it? What is it right now? Like seven sixty or so? Yeah. Um, I yeah, I think we're currently using seven sixty one for Canon Cat, and okay. uh, so yeah, uh, SpriteLock works with the new API. So like the calling performance improvements, you know, are sort of automatic. They're under the hood. Um, so it was just a matter of making it backwards compatible. With the new uh, API function calls, there is still more work to be done with that because um, I still need to, to check to see whether or not all the other issues have been fixed with regards to the new sprite stuff. Like there were you know masking issues, you know yeah. gradient fill issues, just a bunch of issues. Uh, and also there's, there's this whole you know dynamic um, uh, dynamic sprite sheet you know resolution thing that was added recently. Uh, I need to follow up on that, but. SpriteLock had already supported that for quite some time, um, you know, just doing some tricks with regards to scaling. Okay. And how much is it for listeners who are using Corona that are interested in you know, a productivity tool to speed up their development? Yeah, so for anyone who has a ton of experience with Flash, Flash Art, you know, uh, SpriteLock will save you a ton of time. It only costs $49. Just consider how you, know, how you price your own time in hours. Um, if you were to write your own tool, it'd probably take you more than a couple of hours, <laughs> I'd assume. Yeah. So I think the payoff is uh, pretty much immediate. It's you know, 49 bucks, and you get all feature updates. Uh, we have a whole bunch of plugins. It should save you a bunch of time. If you need premium support, 
we also offer that as a separate product. It's 99 bucks. Uh, I, I will personally answer emails and phone calls and Skype calls for up to two hours from you. Otherwise, if you buy the uh, $49 you know, basic support version of Spreadlock, um, our support premium support contracts start at $250 an hour. Okay. And where can listeners find out more about Spritelock? So you can go to lockheart.com. That's L-O-Q, heart, H-E-A-R-T.com, slash Spritelock, S-P-R-I-T-E-L-O-Q. And uh, you can also find Spritelock on the Corona website. Uh, if you go to the tools section, you can you know, check out our videos on YouTube as well. So um, you know, Google is your friend. <laughs> you can find Spreadlock there too. Okay. And um, so then what's, I guess, what's next in store? Anything else coming up um, aside from the Canon Cat release uh, for your studio? Well, you know, having worked on Canon Cat for the past, you know, eight or nine months, um, Don and I definitely have been kicking around ideas for a second game. Um, and the only thing that we do know is that we want to make a game that's more of like a system, more... Um, that doesn't require as many, uh, I guess, art or sort of level contents that, that could sort of uh, iterate on sort of an, a more evergreen type game where um, yeah. uh, you could sort of just have, you know, the player explore the system rather than um, trying to create more levels and more art assets for them to go through. And for, okay, so so you're going to, you're maybe potentially looking at a second game. For the listeners out there, what would you say are the top learning lessons you've had as you've developed this first game? I guess things that you wish you would have known when you first started. Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, you're kind of stumping us because you know, we kind of went into this um, with our eyes and minds open. You know, we wanted to make sure that we... Uh, we're open to feedback that we iterated. Uh, and also, you know, it's about understanding uh, the player, you know, each other, uh, and just being open to all opportunities. Um, I think, you know, because the thing is, I, I've, I've been in other startups, so I've taken those lessons and applied it to this uh, iteration of the startup. Um, but basically what it comes down to is uh, you need to iterate fast, Keep your ideas small and grow them, and uh, keep on learning. Yeah, and I would say also, I mean, it's really easy to stay in your little hole and uh, just develop your little game and cross, you know, the, your task list off every day and be like, "Oh, I'm really busy. I'm making progress." Yeah. But um, that doesn't necessarily mean you're making a good product or you're going the right direction. You you have to really get that game out to other people and really listen to them. Don't say, oh, we don't get it because this is the game that I wanted to make and this is how I want you to feel. Like, <laughs> they're going to feel however they feel and they're going to like your game whether, whether you, you know, want them to or not. And, and you really have to listen to that and, mm -hmm. and understand that, you know, people out there, you're not just designing your game for yourself. Um, and I think uh, if you, I mean, if you want to have something as a business, if you just want a hobby, then, you know, that's yeah. fine. Uh, let me see if I can provide a useful tip. I mean, I, I read a lot of game design books. Yeah. I, uh, my library is like full, Huge, full yeah. of books. Um, so, like The Art of Game Design by Jesse Shell, excellent book. Um, 
Let's see. Uh, Theory of Fun by Ralph Koster. Excellent book. Um, and uh, What's interesting about the mobile space also is that a lot of the concepts in those books aren't even really enough to satisfy some of the successful designs in mobile. I mean, some of the designs in mobile are kind of unique to this, in the sense that they aren't mentioned in a lot of these books that were published before kind of the, the sure. iPhone and smartphone revolution. Any anytime you're reading a book like that, um, you shouldn't be looking at prior examples as being like sort of the, the you know, prescriptive way to do things. Uh, you need to look at sort of the psychological aspects and the system aspect of uh, what they're talking about. Because, it's about the principles of the game yeah, design. Yeah, yeah. You, okay. you want to understand the principles of game design because what is game design? I mean, it like requires so many different fields, but uh, I think the biggest part of it is like mathematics and psychology. You know, yeah, um, and having a thorough understanding of those things can help you build better games. Yeah, are you, I mean, what are techniques and steps you're doing to make sure that your game design skills, you know, are at the top of the field? Uh, so I read a lot, like I said. Um, I, I have just about like every game design book that's on Amazon. <laughs> some of them are terrible, some of them are great. Yeah, I mean, aside from the two that you mentioned, are there any other game design books that step, you know, stand out? Uh, let's see. I'm trying. I'm kind of drawing a blank right now, but I have um, uh, what is it? The feel of games. I forgot what it's called. Feeling game feeling or something by Swink. Okay. Um, there's the rules of play, which is uh, okay. I don't know standouts. Sure. I mean, standouts really. The uh, the art of game design is a standout for sure. Um, theory of fun, I thought it was excellent. Yeah. Um, but there's also special specialty sort of uh, subjects that that Don has, you know, has read a lot on, and and I've read a lot on, and and it's, you know, it could be down to your your art, like your specifically vector art. Like, how do you get really good at vector art? You know, and getting a book on that and learning from experts in that field will help you in that aspect as well as sound design mm. as well as you know what it comes down to though is i mean uh, reading up on game design is just only one aspect of it it's really all these other subjects that you could be reading about that could apply to games right like for instance uh cellular automata you know or yeah. evolutionary game theory or you know any biology book or physics book or chemistry book or whatever yeah. if you're uh, interested in a lot of subjects then you can bring a new take into game design and so Really, you know, in the game design portion of it, that's not sufficient. Yeah, you need cross-pollination <laughs> yeah. from, yeah. from other areas. I, I think the challenge is, you know, how do you, because, you know, reading all those fields, you have all this theory, and then, mm -hmm. you know, how do you balance that with the practical requirements right. of, you know, getting a, an actual product done that may not necessarily be completely revolutionary right. or utilize all those different dimensions or fields like psychology or neuroscience or whatever else? Mm -hmm. um, you know, have you found a way to balance that, or is that just... You're just reading so, them for fun. Right. No, no, no. It's, I mean, what it comes down to is you need to apply everything you're reading, right? Um, you know, it's it's all about well, experimentation. So that's a that's a great point. But how do you do that when when you're focusing on polishing this one game? Because if you're focusing on if you if you talk about the requirement of being able to apply everything that you read, you know, to mm -hmm. really make the most of that reading experience, mm -hmm. that means that you'd have to be doing other types of games maybe on the side while you're doing your primary game. Yeah, potentially. Um, you know. I think uh, every day I do a little bit of game design, so that requires you know imagining new mechanics, building out new things, doing little experiments here and there. 
But yeah, it's a it's a double edged sword because, like you said, if you're focusing on one thing, uh, it's hard to do anything else. So you you need to make time for it. And so there are times when David and I are just like burnt out. We're like, oh, you know, enough with Canicat. Let's just spend one day talking about exploring these other ideas. And so you need to set aside that time. But I would say, like, with everything that you're reading, you have to take it into context of, you know, for Canicat, how, what I'm reading right now, how can I improve Canicat based on this new knowledge, based on this, you know, on, the, on yeah. this book that I'm reading. And I think, you know, applying those to, to the game is, is quite, quite important. I mean, another thing to consider is uh, thought experiments are really useful. If, you're, if you get into the habit of uh, predicting and, and sort of uh, testing out your predictions, then you get better at that. So it's not always necessary to experiment with everything if you've done a whole bunch of experiments before. And you can sort of, sort of do a thought experiment um, to you know, try things out. So, um, Great. Uh, where can listeners then um, find out more information about Canon Cat and potentially check out the game? Yeah, uh, they can just check out uh, canoncat.com. That's uh, C-A-N-N-O-N-C-A-T. And uh, the trailer's up already. And um, yeah, there's actually... Uh, a preview article on pocketnext.com uh, and they do a little preview of our game they, they, they were able to get a preview version of our game and play it and uh, they, they have a great review of, of our game okay, okay. Great. Uh, great thanks very much uh, take care well thanks for taking the time to talk to us definitely take care bye bye